This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please consider setting up a small monthly donation at patreon.com backslash the creative curmudgeon, or consider making a one-time donation at venmo.com backslash the creative curmudgeon. Welcome to the Creative Curmudgeon. Today, I am joined by the musician, writer, husband, father, and all-in-all great guy, Eric Paul. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you some some music questions. Of course. Um, And I wanted to ask you specifically about your screaming voice. Because it definitely, as you know, deviates from the traditional, you know, macho, like really angry, scary sounding screaming. And I'm curious how you initially developed that and who inspired that. So in the early days, it was... um, kind of me realizing or recognizing the range that I could sort of sing in. So I became a singer by default. I was um, originally a drummer and was interested in um, being like a drummer in bands. Mm -hmm. But um, Craig, who played with me in all of the projects for my latest project, was much better at a drummer and uh additionally you know i already kind of was intrigued by the idea of singing and writing lyrics lyrics and expressing it that way but when i started i was not much of a singer per se like somebody that could be melodious or somebody that could be uh you know sing these hooks or anything like that so i just started kind of looking towards um, singers that had a unique approach to singing so one of the things that stood out initially and i was and i'm talking like 18 19 years old is i did like a lot of bands that you know had a singer that was like screaming or being aggressive with their approach but i just realized very quickly i was not somebody that could do that i just it wasn't in me to do it physically Mm -hmm. um uh when i tried it perhaps I was trying it wrong but however I tried it it just hurt my throat mm-hmm. and sounded insane and very quickly was not something I realized it was something I wanted to pursue but then I started um I remember hearing the record second edition by um public image limited public image limited and I remembered like you know in high school hearing about like 
the Sex Pistols and stuff and, you know, knowing who they were. And my friend listened to their record a lot. I mean, I thought it was okay. Um, but I remembered hearing Second Edition and the way he approached his vocals and that were incredibly inspiring to me. It was the range that I was in and it was an approach that was sort of, to me, it was like captivating, engaging, but yet didn't follow the traditional trajectory of what a vocalist would do over songs. Mm-hmm. And that just, that just clicked with me. So a lot, largely like the first album that I recorded, um, Queen Hygiene, I was really in a lot of ways emulating or had his approach in the back of my head. Um, and we did even so with the musical uh, approach as well, right? Mm-hmm. Second edition was a huge uh, influence on us. So that that's kind of where it started. And then I just, I know this sounds sort of like strange, but then I kind of just like got deeper and deeper into that approach or deeper into that role and like almost like dropped myself into the hole of it and started feeling around and then just trying to find these sort of nuances where I could not sound so much like him, mm-hmm. but still kind of keep the approach. And then from record to record, I just thought a lot about how I could form my own identity. And I just realized that more focusing more on the delivery of the words rather than any sort of melody was just something that I felt comfortable with. And then it just sort of evolved from there. And um, in different projects, one thing I've consciously tried to do was sound different in different projects as well. So with Arab, there was that sort of, you know, Johnny Lydon-esque high, thin, almost like singing it from like the top of my mouth, like my palate almost. Mm -hmm. But then when that, you know, project ended, I was like, I don't want to do the same thing. So I had to do some experimenting with other stuff. And I will say, looking back on it, some of the experience uh, experiments failed. (laughs) Some were a little bit as they do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And some I connected more with, um, and even with like a graveyard, the project I've been doing for the last couple of years, I sing a lot of the songs in a really low register or low mm-hmm. for me <laughs> yeah. and more talking of a talking delivery. And that's been really, really fun to, you know, experiment with that. I mean, it's always me and I feel like there is something that's recognizable about the cadence of my voice, but I at least try to, for my own sake, feel as though I'm approaching things differently. But I think the shortest answer would be that, you know, I was sort of forced into a situation to like, you're the singer now. And the only voice I felt like I could sort of emulate was, um, uh, Johnny Lydon, um, or John Lydon, excuse me. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I, uh, I don't know that I would have on my own put together the connection between your vocals and having Lydon as an influence, but it makes perfect sense now mm-hmm. that like you mentioned it, cause like you, there's definitely that, uh, more sassiness 
that yeah, in both. And another odd reference that I don't know if you'll hear or not, but I've was my entire life and still to this day, I'm a very huge fan of The Cure. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I remembered, you know, really gravitating towards The Cure because this was one of the bands my friends were listening to. This was, you know, this one of five staple bands that you kind of had to listen to, you know, growing up. But I remember myself always being really attracted to like, like the B sides, like the really odd experimental stuff that the cure did, like uh, Mr. Pink Eye. Yeah. That particular, (laughs) that's a cool song. Like uh, Mr. Pink Eye, happy. The man, do you know that song? Like, no, um, there's also a song, happy the man is a really cool i think it's called happy the man yeah these just weird b-sides so they'd have these sort of like a-sides that have this sort of like pop inclinations but then Mm -hmm. the b-sides would just be really odd and he would just take this really crazy unhinged vocal approach i remember there was a song um man inside my mouth that was Mm -hmm. a really cool song that he had and i remembered really liking the sort of unhinged quality to it so that was something that I referenced a lot in my earlier days and probably still do unconsciously. But I loved that sort of delivery where the words are so reflective. Sorry, the vocals are so reflective of the words. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you're writing a certain way, you have to do that, you know? Yeah, sure. Do you do you have a favorite album or era of The Cure? I mean, it's really, really tough to say that I have, if I had to say I have a favorite, but I mean, if I had only one album by The Cure to listen to the rest of my life, it would probably be Pornography. Yeah, I think I think that's my favorite as well. I like that, like, yeah. those 17 seconds in Faith in Pornography, I think, are like, in my that's opinion, where that's, I'm like, at. that's the era, yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm at, too. Um, do you do anything to keep up your voice uh I'm a, i talk a lot uh, as a professor <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm just like <laughs> no i don't do anything like that well, even that I like i talk a lot as a teacher but then like you know at the end of the day oftentimes my voice is just like hoarse, just like talking nonetheless like you know what you're doing on stage <laughs> no i i mean i do realize that when we so we this year I have been tracking the vocals on and off for the new psychic graveyard record. And the way we do it is rather unorthodox. We actually track the stems at our, except for the drums, we track like the, I track the vocal parts here in my house mm-hmm. in a home studio. Nathan tracks a lot of um, the synth parts and then Paul actually will even track the guitar parts here at my um, home studio as well. And I do. So then the point being is that when I'm starting to get these songs, okay, these are going to be the songs and I start tracking them. I realize that when I start tracking after not, you know, after taking a year off, a year and a half off to, to like play shows to support the album, when I verse first start tracking, I can barely last. Like mm-hmm. I'll do like a few takes of a verse or something. And I'll be like, oh my God, my voice is like not feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> and then as I, as I go and go and go, it does get stronger. So when we, I, t- I, so the album, the new album has 10 songs and we had just gotten back from 
the UK and Europe. And then I had to track five of them when I got, when I got back. And I realized very easily that I could track for, you know, three or four hours and feel really comfortable and confident in like the, you know, physical aspects of the voice. So mm -hmm. it seems like I just have to remind myself that to start slow and then, and let it build. But, you know, touring keeps it at least to a point where it can be, um, go that can be used for hours and hours in that way but i don't mm -hmm. practice or do anything else besides just talking <laughs> yeah you don't you don't like you know specifically drink like honey honey tea or some shit no i i don't really do that i mean i get sick a lot on tour and mm -hmm. there's a, a tea i use called throat coat that oh, helps yeah. a lot throat when i'm not when i'm not feeling well i'll yeah. use that on tour but actually just try to drink a lot of water um when i'm on tour or even when i'm tracking i will drink uh, after takes just take water 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 mm -hmm. there's something about what it must do to the vocal cords that helps do you have any sort of uh recording know-how that you feel like sharing as far as like what kind of mic you use for recording or if there's a room preference or like, yeah, how do you go about that? Yeah. So I use, I use three mics generally on the psychic graveyard stuff. I use actually a, a mic that a lot of people use for podcasting because of I, because of the more spoken word delivery of it, I guess um, mm -hmm. for this band, I think it's a sure, I think it's called SM seven sure SM seven or, um something like that and then i use another sure mic that is a like a cb mic that mm. a friend of mine hacked and turned it into something that had an xlr and then i use this other broadcast mic that you see in like like news reporting from like the seventies and the eighties where they would, every journalist would have this particular mic. I think it's electro voice if I'm not mistaken, but it's actually really small, but it has a really, really unique quality to it. So I use that on um, some of the songs as well. I wish I could, there has been a mic that I've been looking at. Um, I think it's a, no, I think it's pronounced Neumann um u38 i believe and i've watched the mm. videos of it but they're just a little bit out of my price range um and i always want to sort of just you know buy it for the next record but then i get to the point where i'm making the next record and say shit i'm broke again i don't know if i can afford that mic so right i tend to just use that uh that sure sm7 because it's also really mutable i give i just give a very dry signal so in fact before it's sent the vocal tracks are sent over to machines with magnets where we record our albums they really don't have as much character as you think they may because i want them to be very mutable and mm -hmm. then the person who produces our stuff seth manchester He's the one that kind of puts a lot of a lot of character to them, yeah. like finds the right nuances from the performance and EQs it or 
puts it through like another preamp or something. Yeah, you want it to be like a blank slate so you can do more with it. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard at first because I remembered when we did the first time we worked with him was a Bluebird Vacation. And I remembered I was singing through uh, that mic and another mic. And I remembered giving him like stuff that I had treated. So I would sing through like uh, a knee preamp and I would add like some compression to it. Sometimes I'd add a tape echo. And it realized that, oh, we quickly realized that a lot of the stuff was sort of not usable just because of the way the other instruments were um, ending up once they were sort of sent through the outboard gear and the vocals just sounded very uh, uncomfortable. So I remember mm -hmm. with Blueboard, I actually had to go back and re-record a lot of stuff in a blank, dry way so that when it went to him he had the ability to mold it um, in the mixing process yeah that makes sense the, the one that i really want to get is I, I i had to remind myself with the name looking it up but it's the re20 and it's because my friend blue uh she sings in the band diners but i did one of these podcasts with her and then it's really nice mic and then afterwards i was like what like what's what's with the nice mic what do you use and she's like oh it's the one that fraser uses I'm like oh shit like that's that's the one i gotta get Frazier. Yeah, Frazier. Like when he's when he's doing the radio show, like he has like uh, he, he has that <laughs> mic. Yeah, I would have never. I just could not. My brain was searching and searching. I was like, it can't be Frazier, Frazier. Yeah, was yeah. On, on his on his radio show. Yeah, the That's RE20. So funny. Yeah. If if you can look at the other mic, I can send you a text after about it. Sure. You'll start seeing the mic I'm talking about, like in like with journalists and newscasters like when you're looking at like films or like sure. uh, old news clips and stuff you'll see them <laughs> right right yeah people people that look very like 1920s like yeah you know gathering outside <laughs> city hall like you know yeah frantically trying to interview al capone or whatever yeah yeah um was it hard to like as far as like the stuff that you tackle lyrically, just mm -hmm. some, you know, obviously some traumatic shit. And I know that you weren't like intending for it to be like a mass audience at any point. You guys were like, you know, largely playing for yourselves and getting this shit off your chest. But yeah, you know, obviously audiences were part of the plan since, you know, you were performing out or whatever. So even if you, or performing in front of you know three people or whatever like i feel like for a lot of people that would be extremely difficult to like bear your soul like that to uh to strangers and do so in like a in a confrontational way was that difficult for you at any point was that something that you had to overcome or did it always kind of come naturally to you i just kind of compartmentalized it like it would be almost like um when I was, I mean, my earlier lyrics or a lot of the earlier ones were the ones that I dealt with a lot of the more challenging stuff in my life. But I would just, it was just something that I did in isolation. And I would have the words, I would have my parts, I would go into the studio, and then I would sort of just move from that isolation 
put it into the song in a studio. And then that was like a second step of it. And then the performance of it was almost past the point of vulnerability for me. So I meant, what I mean by that is the most vulnerable moments was in the writing and recording process. But then once it became a record or it was done, I never really thought so much about um, what I was actually communicating on mm. stage. It became more of a visceral thing. Emotionally, I was aware of it. or Physically, I was aware of it. But I, it was just the words were just automatically being spoken at that point um, or being sung at that point. So the writing process is usually where it's really, really hard. And back in the day, like you said, I was just uncensored. I just, if, if it needed to come out, I would just do it. And it was obviously more careless then um, and even careless for my own well-being. But it's still the same way. So now I write about a lot of stuff that, you know, is ongoing in my life an adult trying to survive um mm -hmm. with uh, you know a lifetime of mental illness and trying to survive in a more sophisticated environment or atmosphere holding down a job raising a son having a successful partnership marriage so there's always that thread of things that are there but i have realized still to this point once it's tracked and mixed and mastered I don't connect as much with the words while performing. The performance is just a more physical experience than it is cerebral for me. But um, there is a lot of vulnerability in the writing process. I tend to sort of, you know, sometimes not feel so good. Sure. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that, like, from your first band to like now, that there's like a clear voice that's like throughout it that it's, it's neat to like grow up with that. And so mm -hmm. like, you know, listening to Arab on radar as a young person and like now where it's like with psychic graveyard, like you can hear like, okay, like I, I have a family and I own a home, but it still yeah. is really fucking hard being me in the world. Like that's, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still the yeah. same person. Like I, 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 I've appreciated having that experience with, with your work. And also a big surprise too. <laughs> I also question how the fuck am I doing this? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. How did are I we all... end up here? Yeah. How did I end up here from that person there? Your bands are consistently into uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> and I was curious if you wanted to talk about that as an aesthetic choice. Uh, I think there's two ways that I could talk about this. Um, one would be fear of fashion. <laughs> okay. And not... Uh, like how Steve Jobs would wear the same thing every day, like that sort of thing. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. And also, um, you know, how does one dress to present themselves? Every day we present ourselves a certain way and the way that we dress and there's never been any clarity on how does one dress to present the type of music we're making. A lot mm -hmm. of that is that, 
and then also not feeling very confident about the um, style of clothing that we normally wear. Mm -hmm. So we just thought it'd be easier to just sort of take that out of the equation. <laughs> and that's kind of generally where uh, sometimes it's come from. Um, originally with Arab, though, it started because we were obsessed with the Heaven's Gate oh, yeah. um, cult. cult. We were on tour once, and when it, we were on tour when it happened, I remember we went into this uh, truck stop, and there was like CNN on like like thirty different TVs in this giant truck stop on Route eighty, and uh, there was just the first thing that we all saw when we walked in was the images of the sneakers and the, you know, the blankets and everything, and we just. I mean, I remember thinking, I don't want to say we, but I remember thinking that I just hadn't really been struck by an image so powerful before. Mm -hmm. And we sort of started talking on that tour, like we should try to figure out a way that we could look like some sort of cult members, but obviously not adapt to any sort of cultist ideology. Mm -hmm. So we we got these matching, well, they were like janitor outfits or maintenance workers or mechanic outfits that were just dickies. Mm -hmm. for a long time we shaved our heads and it was about removing fashion out of the equation you know yeah. so it was just like judge us on the performance and the music and not about you know how cool or not cool we look you know because there are a lot of bands obviously that like rely heavily on what they dress like and how that ties into what they're presenting as art and we didn't want that to be ever be part of the conversation um yeah i've i've always been really into like uniforms and mm -hmm. i've thought a lot about why like a lot of my uh favorite bands your bands the locust devo mm -hmm. the beatles um, yeah. and even stuff that's like non-musical that i really love like star trek where yeah, yeah. I thought about like a lot about why that like really clicks with me. And I think it has to do with just like feeling uh, not to turn this into like a therapy session, but like feeling like alienated from like family and peers and never feeling like quite like you fit in and yeah. like how that sort of like uniform amongst like a select group of people has this like us against them sort of like yeah. ideology yeah. to it. Yeah. And there's just like something that almost uh, is like comforting about like seeing that, even when it's yeah. like something like really like fucked yeah. up, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, oh, they, know, they, they, ha they have each other. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And there, and it became like ritualistic in a lot of ways too. Like we, there was a time where we would be in them 24 hours a day, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> and we were admittedly losing our minds from, from touring so much. And we would show up and load in, looking like that and everything you know it, it, it got a little less <laughs> intense as the years went on mm -hmm. but there is just something about sort of putting on your quote-unquote uniform to go do something that is unique to go do yeah. something that's special and it's not necessarily a job but you are stepping outside of your the more mundane aspects of your life and putting something on to go into this sort of performance mode you know and there are a lot of people that have a very different view of that they just want to sort of like this is who i am and who i'm off the stage is who i am on the stage like 
don't know, for a band like perhaps like Nirvana, for example, right? Sure. They would just be the same wherever you'd see images of them, you know? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't for me. I feel very differently on stage than I do off the stage. And they are two very distinct people. And I like my, my clothing to represent that. Sure. Yeah. And like, I, you know, when I played in bands in the past, like I would also have like a certain getup for performing in front of people. And like, there definitely is the mindset of like, all right, now I'm Batman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like now, like now it's time to get down to business. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a comfort in that. Is There is a comfort in a way of just sort of like you were saying, like Star Trek or, you know, like, you look around and you're like, okay, we're all dressed alike. Now we're in this together. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, are you willing to read some stuff that you've written? Let's, let's shift over to the, the writing side of you, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't know how many pieces you wanted me to read, but I just have um, one, a cup, just like a couple here. Is yeah, that right? that's great. Absolutely. Okay. This is titled, After reading an article in the New York Times suggesting latchkey kids were twice as likely to be overbearing parents. Again, dating back to the 80s. Sure. <laughs> latchkey kids. My son met his milestones early. With his two short, chubby legs, he walked out of the hospital with us. He pointed at a tree stump and said, Dad. At home, he changed my diapers and sleep-trained my wife. Still, I worry. I worry he will be abducted by cult members in the next town over. They are looking to escape Earth with a spaceship they are building in an abandoned barn. I worry he will not understand how angry the sun has gotten. He may not wear sunscreen. I worry he will never find a job unless I attend all his interviews and ask and answer all the questions. My friends maliciously call me a helicopter parent. Well, I was, after all, a latchkey kid, alone for hours and hours. I did arithmetic homework by counting the fingers of imaginary friends. I fell asleep cuddling the television. But I argue that I'm a great parent. I would never let my son feel as lonely as I did when opening the door to an empty house. Just today, I noticed a new strand of hair growing on his head and that he took 32,185 breaths. All right. Thank you for reading that. That's awesome. So here, here's this poem that I, I wrote. And, and one of the things that I, I noticed is that a lot of times I write the poems that I write Sorry, the poems that I like that I write, no one else seems to enjoy them. And it's always seems like <laughs> the poems that I have no idea how people are going to respond to is is the ones um, that people most respond to. So I'm going to read a poem called The Solution Okay. that I don't think anyone has ever admitted to liking to, but I like it. So I'm going to read it to you now. Okay, then. <laughs> Weeks ago, over lunch, a close friend confided in me that he had a strong desire to kill. It's all I think about, he said, plunging a fork into the last chunk of steak on his plate. Feeling concerned about losing my friend to a long pr prison sentence, or worse, losing my life, 
I offered what I felt was the perfect solution. I found him a job as a cook at an American family restaurant owned by another friend. The customers are enjoying the changes he's made to the already glutton-pleasing menu, and the owner is overjoyed because his dining room is filled at every meal. If a customer orders the roast, roasted turkey dinner, my friend pours twice the helping of gravy over the entire meal. If a customer orders the stuffed French toast, he adds an extra scoop of butter and plenty of powdered sugar. He sautés all the vegetables in lard and deep fries all the fish in corn oil. Last night, he came to my table while I was eating my appetizer of fried mozzarella sticks and acknowledged the idea was working. I was relieved, at least for now, the early deaths of his patrons appears to be enough. All right. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. You <laughs> you were saying that, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the stuff that like you're the most into of your stuff is the stuff that people respond to the least. Yeah. Huh. I don't know yeah. why that is. That's that's interesting. Um what is your process for uh, writing a poem typically? So it has been revealed to me through this uh, woman that I have been, this woman named Renee Ashley, who I've been, who I studied with for a few years and continue to share work with her and correspond with her. She told me that I was more of a conceptual writer as opposed to an auditory writer and i don't know um if that fits the definition for um or those definitions apply to um, all writers but i always seem to start with like a concept or an idea and then the language is secondary mm -hmm. where she claims that you know herself and a lot of a lot of other writers write by sound and really look at you know the alphabet as um in a more uh, musical way you mm -hmm. know and it's interesting that you know my whole life has been devoted to music and i don't write that way but it also makes a lot of sense why um i wouldn't want to write that way uh, a little bit of escaping from the musicality of 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 it all but I've just always started with concepts. I just walk, this was from a, a real conversation I had with a friend who was talking about uh, curiosity about wanting, what it'd be like to kill someone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, so it was like more of a spawn from like, you know, people's fascination with true crime and Sure. Really, how dark dark it is when it, when you really look at it and analyze it, <laughs> and you don't just take it as like um, consumer, like as a, as a consumerist or for entertainment value, but you really think about like what one of these um, murders would be like, and how really vile and, and violent, but yet human they mm. are, and we he was intellectualizing about just how someone gets into that space um 
without being inspired by anger to do something like that, you know. And that's kind of where it came from. And then I was joking with him that I I have some other idea, other ways I think you can kill people if you really want to try it out. And that's kind of came from a joke. And then it sort of, at the time, it, you know, I think a lot about consumerism. I think a lot about America, of course, because it's in my face every day. And right. that's sort of where the, the poem um, came from. And the other poem um came from you know a a concept as well and in some ways it came it was a reaction to doctors and clinicians telling me that my son was not meeting his milestones aka you know autism um very very early in his life he demonstrated these uh traits um of autism and I, they kept saying that word to me. He's not meeting his milestones. He's not meeting his milestones. They say that all the time. And it fucking hurt every time they said it. And that poem was re- a reaction to all of these people that were saying these things. So the poem became, became a little bit of a mockery about it. And also a little bit of a reflection about myself. Like, well, while I was speaking and meeting other milestones, I, were not, I was not meeting emotional milestones and um intellectual milestones because of the stunted growth i had as a as a kid too and it was just about that you know people arrive where they're where they're going to arrive at their own time mm-hmm. and it was a reflection of it so but it was more conceptual it sure. wasn't like this sort of what word sounds good here here's a line that's gonna be turned into a poem it wasn't like that it's about me sort of taking these narrative pieces and i just keep either email them to myself or i audio do an audio like voice notes of it you know mm-hmm. even this week I, I drove by this guy who's been he has a giant boat it's not in my neighborhood but I, I drive by and he's been like rebuilding a boat on his front lawn and he thought it was really fucking funny that he decided like I'm going to rebuild a boat and it's going to be on the front lawn and everyone's just going to have to deal with it you know <laughs> and, and, and and I, I just see him out there like working on the boat and stuff. So I, I, I was kind of, I just kind of had this idea, like what the fuck is this guy going to do with this boat? That's on his front fucking lawn, you know, like, mm-hmm. so then I kind of came up with this little sort of, you know, I don't know, antidote in my head. Like what if he just started to, what if he left the boat there and he just starts fishing off of it and doing weird shit and pretending that he's in the ocean in his front. Yeah. So then I like wrote that to myself, like, Hey, here's a poem idea guy that's building the boat on river road mm-hmm. do it you know and that's how they start and then i write the narrative piece down you once told me that um you don't have like a set like oh i try to write this many times a week or for like this long a day that it's more of a hibernation sort of thing where you like yeah. kind of like store ideas as you go along and then do, there's yeah. just like one chunk of time where you just like just balls it to the all wall. comes out yeah that's exactly how i work i i can't I just can't keep, I'm just not that type of a disciplined person mm-hmm. to say, I get two hours every day of writing. I just, I just can't do that. I, I just, I don't know why it's just not in me. They're just, well, you, some have a, you have a job and you, you care about your yeah. family. Like a lot of the people yeah, that do yeah. that, like don't care about those things. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I just can't do that. And also I just generally don't feel like doing it every day. I, I just, yeah. I don't desire it some days I'd rather, you know, go and go to the bar and have a couple beers or see a friend or, you know, go to the 
go to the pool with my son, like then just say I'm working, you know? Mm-hmm. But what I do do though, is I set these sort of loose schedules in my head and I do go into these hibernation modes and then I go into like, you know, a, you know, writing mode. So right now on my schedule is um, when my son goes back to school, I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, finally getting an office for the first time in my life of, of, uh, and my whole plan is to just sort of make these tentative quote unquote office hours for my students. But I think that certainly I'll welcome any students that need to be there, but that's where I'm going to go to a designated place and start writing down a lot of these ideas that I've been hibernating with. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm doing for the fall. And I have about 30 poems that are just about complete 40 poems that are just about complete. So I'm hoping to sort of bang out a bunch in the next few months and then try to get another collection together. And I'll have all the ideas there, their emails, their voice recordings. But again, I know that it's coming. So Mm -hmm. it's more of a visceral thing. Like I know that I'm getting to that point where I want to start writing these things down. So that's just my process. I do, you know, I wish I had it in me to be like, I'm somebody that writes three or four pages a day. I just don't, I just not like that. Yeah. And you you need to like be enjoying yourself, like while you're doing that. And like, you know, I'm sure yeah. you like look forward to the process, like yeah. when it's like something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, You, are you still writing like mainly prose poems? Yeah. All the new ones are prose poems, but I, I've been, it's funny because I've been thinking a lot about, so I remember when I first put, I offered myself as the C out. Which I hope to read I ha- someday. I haven't been able to. Oh. <laughs> I have a popular place to explode and a suitcase full of dirt, but like yeah. that, I'm 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 not in the, you know, price range where I can like. So, but someday I hope to read some yeah. some form of it. I I, I really it, want to. It does suck how much people charge for those fucking books when they go out of print. But so, um, there's no prose poems in that. That was all free verse, and a lot of them, a lot of lyrics in there. So when I was working on that. I thought I had more poems than I thought I had more than, than what ended up like going in there. And at the time I was working with um, Wes who runs hot warm press and Wes was like, just throw your poems in there, man. I mean, throw your lyrics in there. Like, why does it matter? It's a poem or a lyric. It's a, you know, basically you just had this cool way of looking at it. Like, it's still your creative work on a page and people will get something from that as much as they may with a poem. Right. So I actually added some lyrics in there and that was the first time I started printing my, um, printing lyrics alongside, you know, the the poems. And then with popular place, I just decided I don't want any lyrics in here. I just want poems, you know? And then, the third book had a mixture again had lyrics and poems but it was primarily a retrospective on my lyrics so that was the sort of marketing aspect of it was that it would be lyrics so i'm kind of now at the point that i have you know 40 30 40 lyrics that have never been put on paper and i have about 30 poems and i've been trying to decide Will it devalue the poems if I include the lyrics? Will it devalue the lyrics if I put the poems in? Do people want both in one book? Do they not want both in one book? And I haven't quite decided yet what I'm going to do with it. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. 
the poems though are all prose, but I also thought it might be neat to have these sort of lyrics that are represented like free verse poems yeah. alongside them. So I'm I'm curious how because I, I worked on some poems recently with uh, Matthias Felina. Um, oh my god, I am so in awe of that man. Yeah, no, he's he, he I, <laughs> I interviewed him for 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 this podcast recently as well. Um, but uh, he looked at some of my poems and said, I think these might work better as prose poems because they were like broken up. And I was like, That's okay, I'll give that a try. Why? Why do you think that? And he's like, I don't know. I just I just think it would work better as prose. And so when that similarly, yeah. like when I've worked on stuff with you in the past and you made a suggestion, some sometimes it was more of a this just feels more right. Like it's more like an, an intuitive sort of thing than being able to yeah. like scientifically say uh yeah. say what is the case. Um, but I yeah. am curious, uh like, do you have any insight as to like beyond that as to like whether work something works better as a prose poem versus like broken up? I mean, typically I've just seen prose poems that have a stronger narrative feature. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the prose poems that inspired me to start writing prose poems have these very short narrative arcs to them. You know, um, they begin somewhere. At some point there's a dissonance or a tension and then there's a release and a closure. Like mm -hmm. a lot of the, you know, any narrative arc may have. So I've just seen things that have a more narrative nature. I just think they feel a little better written as prose poems. And that's how I arrived at them. I started workshopping a lot of my poems that were in free verse. And A, the line breaks weren't doing anything for them. Mm -hmm. They just weren't working. They were not. I mean, admittedly, I'm not very, I know how to teach line breaks and I know what they are very well and i can communicate them but i can't always execute them the way i'd like to it's just mm -hmm. not a skill uh, skill i have but um that same advice that matthias gave you was something somebody gave me your poems feel more narrative why not try mm -hmm. them as prose and then it just started feeling good yeah. <laughs> and then i wrote them as prose and they read as prose and I loved not having a stress about line breaks. And I loved justifying the text and removing a lot of the mystery behind the craft, you know, and then just sort of focusing on the, the story and the arc and the, the dissonance of the piece. And that's what uh, I love. And, and Matthias largely writes uh, 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 prose poems too. Not mm -hmm. always though. Yeah. He's also he's also masterful at anything he does. So his free verse poems are incredible, you know. But I tend to like his more for I like his more narrative pieces. It's um, an interesting psychological trick to like yeah, feel like you're reading just like a short story based on it being in like complete sentences or whatnot, yeah. like one after another, but then it being largely divorced from like any sort of like typical like it makes sense to itself yeah but doesn't make sense in the in the typical realm of like this happens and this happens it's the way things like logically yeah. happen in fiction or whatever so yeah it's yeah it, it makes me feel really fucked up in a, in a good way uh reading yeah it's poems. fun it, i mean it's really fun it's really sort of mind-bending in a in a way too to see writing that looks <laughs> like it could be anything right mm -hmm. when you first look at it like uh instructions <laughs> yeah <laughs> or 
you know, or just the uh, journalism or something. And then you start reading it and you get deeper and deeper into the words and somehow the words and the lines and the imagery, they seem to be more powerful for mm -hmm. me because they're not presented as a quote unquote traditional poem. I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go, but do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to share with, with the world? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can say that, um, that uh, talk a little bit about our friendship. I value our friendship. Could I end uh, with that? Sure. <laughs> um, I, uh, very excited to be here. Very excited to speak speak with you i am always envious of just your your can i put it just your excitement and love of all of the same things that i um, have excitement and love for and i think that's why we connect so well and i you know know that we met in a more professional professional capacity where you know, we were um, in, um, I was teaching a class that or doing one-on-one -on -one work with you, um, mm -hmm. class in quotes, I guess. But I, I love that it developed into a friendship. I love that you are still writing. I love that you are doing this podcast. And it's just a really, really cool endeavor. And I, I think that I hope you know, the podcast grows and I hope more and more people tune in to these conversations that you have with others. I'm certainly going to listen to the Matthias one immediately. I didn't know it, it existed, but uh, I just want to say that, I, you know, I value our friendship. I value uh, these conversations, all the conversations that we have. And, you know, I find um, a lot of kindred, kindred spirit in Jason um, for loving all the same things that I love because really hard to find uh, meaning in things and this is one of the places that you can most easily find meaning um i thank you so much I, I i feel all the same ways about you and i wish more i wish more guests on this podcast ended by praising me so so thank you for that <laughs>